This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 113. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 113 you're listening to. It's brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. Lawton Audio, Focal Monitors, Universal Audio, and Audio Technica. Once again, a great guest for you today, talking about Mr. Mike Wells of Mike Wells Mastering. And Mike's a former Bay Area resident, now Los Angeles resident. Mike is, you know, like all the people we talk to, in the trenches, working his ass off, you know, just killing it in many ways. I'll be honest, he's had a tough road, and I didn't realize... Uh, the challenges that he had faced, the the extent of the challenges. And he's going to tell us all about that. And there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, I don't know how else to say it. The lesson in Mike's interview is one of perseverance and one of realizing that if you think you got some problems, really take stock of what you have and really learn how to get out of bad situations or difficult situations and really see your way to the goal, you know. You're going to hear it in the interview. I think it's really going to open your eyes a little bit to your own situation, and I, I hope it does, because uh, Mike's Mike's journey has been just that, quite a journey. Yeah, Mike Wells coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Really happy to have Mike on. Fantastic individual. Let's see, on a, uh, on a technical note, I, have, uh, I had to put the 4047 back in the box because the kids are home there. You could probably hear them if I just, here, listen. (laughs) They're in there on the Xbox going ballistic. It's the weekend as I record this. So, so I got to get the BP 40 out. Yeah. You know, I tell you either one of those mics, the 4047 or the, or the BP 40, I'm fond of for different reasons. And, uh, anyways, so here I am back on the BP 40 few of you responded and said, hey, I really like uh, the 4047. In fact, one of you, I can't remember who who said it. They said, uh, oh, yeah, I like the 4047. That makes you sound handsome. And I didn't know how to take that. <laughs> so anyways, back on the BP40, maybe I'm less handsome. I don't know. Anyhow, been doing a little bit different routine lately. I, uh, I stopped doing my live karaoke drumming gig that I was doing once a week. And, you know, it's fun. Obviously, it's fun to play drums. Shit, I've been playing drums for, you know, since the sixth grade. I'm 47 years old. and But, uh, yeah, my karaoke gig had to come to an end. That was, uh, that was good and that was bad. The good part is, is now I get some better sleep. And the bad part is, of course, you know, I'm not getting, working my chops every week. I got to prioritize and decide what I'm going to do. So <laughs> I've decided that uh, focusing more on engineering and, uh, that aspect of my life is more important at this point in my life. Here's what I've been doing, and some of you are going to gasp when I tell you this, but I've been I've been going to bed at 9 o'clock and getting up at 5 a.m. Yes, successfully, for a full week, no doubt. Actually, beyond a week. Even on a Saturday, I got up at 5 a.m. And I'll tell you, there's, there's some advantages to doing that. Um, what I've been doing is getting up and... If I've got a little work to do, of course, it's nice to be able to drink coffee and have it be pitch black outside, nobody awake, and then, you know, kind of focus with a clear head on what I want to focus on with 
kind of that, I don't know, working at night is always fun for me. So this is kind of a combination of having that nighttime appearance, but re in reality, it's the morning and you feel like, you know, the early bird getting the worm kind of thing. Another thing I've been doing is uh, I've been listening to uh, audiobooks, and one of the books I've been listening to has been uh, the book by those guys, The Minimalists. I've mentioned them many times before. And it's interesting what I've been getting out of it. Just, you know, obviously it's good to get rid of the excess junk in your life. And, uh, you know, I've mentioned that throughout my podcast. I've always talked about digitizing documents and taking CDs and sucking them into hard drives and doing that and just clearing the clutter. So it really brings a lot of questions to the forefront for me, like what about pro audio clutter? And I got a lot of pro audio clutter. Even after, you know, ditching a studio, selling off a lot of gear, I still have a lot of gear. I think most of us do, or many of us do. So how do you deal with that? What are you going to do with that gear? I know all of us always do this. Well, you know, I better hold on to that cable or that adapter or whatever, that hard drive or DAP. I'm looking at it right now. I better hold on to that DAP machine or that cassette machine because you never know. And it's really hard to um, make a decision about that stuff. So I've just been doing a lot of reevaluating and doing so in a way that I'm not just, you know, tossing stuff out and getting rid of it. But what I am doing is I am re or kind of reorientating my mix room, mastering room so that I'm utilizing all the things that I need to be utilizing. And then those things that I use once in a while, which I do, uh, I'm kind of putting those off and having those ready to go. Like the DAP machine and the cassette machine and the mini disc are going to be hooked up permanently to a computer that they can be digitized, that I don't have to go through a lot of hassle to, to get something digitized by, you know, going, oh, let me pull the cables out of the box. It's like, let's have it ready to go. Let's be prepared for that. And if in X amount of X amount of days, X amount of months, whatever, or years, I am not using it, then, you know, then I'll ditch it. But I have so many boxes of cables that I haven't touched in probably five years. So, you know, cables, what are you going to do? A, you're not going to throw them away. B, you're not going to sell them. So I'm just giving them to friends, you know, friends that have studios that, hey, you may, you may need something here that, you know, where they're having a little more full business going on, whereas... I'm mostly mixing and mastering. My tracking has gone down tremendously, which is fine, but you know, you adapt with the times. So in an effort to continue to declutter my life, which I really enjoy, and I, I would encourage all of you to investigate that possibility of uh, decluttering, I think it's good. And it really clears the brain, clears the mind. So yeah, check it out. Uh, I definitely encourage you to, to get the minimalist book. I've been in, once again, in the sense of decluttering or in the spirit of decluttering, did I buy the book? I did, but I bought it on a Kindle. So, and not only that, but when you buy it on the Kindle, it gives you the option to add the, the $2 add-on for the Audible situation. So um, I can go back to it and read or I can listen to it. It's many, many options. So I know I've been beating the drum on this minimalist thing and I really hope you're not growing tired of it, but uh, you know, it's working for me. As I always tell you, I'm never going to try to tell you that something is the way it is and that's what, what you should be doing. I always just want to encourage you. It's, this stuff's working for me and it's just me relating it to you. So yeah, don't take it as a big sales pitch because it's not. So um, yeah, that's it. Going to bed at nine, getting up at five, doing all that. It's working out, working out quite well. That's it. 
don't have much else to tell you. So I want to get into this interview with Mike Wells because I really think it's it's a good interview. And it's an important interview, I think. And I've interviewed a lot of people, you all know. And I wasn't anticipating hearing uh, of so many challenges, you know, not to get too super spiritual on you, but if there was a uh, an engineer that deserved the Phoenix Rising Award, if there ever was one, Mike Wells would be the guy. Really good guy, fought through a lot. Now he's kicking ass. Enough mystery. Let's jump into the interview. Mike Wells here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Well, thanks for having me on, Matt. Yeah. So we go back to the Bay Area where we originally met, and I can't remember when I met you. I do have a recollection of you coming to town or me meeting you. I don't know where you came from. And you were just kind of reaching out to people, and and somehow you and I connected. And I I just remember being really impressed. I was like, wow, that, that guy's super cool to reach out like that. Everybody else kind of sits back in their little bubbles and they don't really talk to anybody unless they don't do it proactively. And here you were, I felt, if my recollection, of course, it's always based on people's recollections. I, my recollection is, is that's what you were doing. And I, it was a number of years ago too. So I think that that is one of those little um, demonstrations of somebody else's uh, techniques of be, not only just being, you know, friendly, but also as far as business is concerned, I thought, God, I need to do that more. Do you remember, do you remember when that was? I do remember when that was. And it was around the early 2000s. I want to say 2004, 2005, uh, mid 2000s. There you go. Okay. I had gotten the business off the ground, the mastering business. I'd gotten that off the ground in the late nineties and I moved into Hyde street around 2003 and so for those first couple of years, it was learning the landscape of folks outside of my immediate network and seeing who I could reach out to. And that's how I started doing it. I certainly wasn't the most comfortable guy of getting out of the comfort zone. And so I looked around San Francisco to see how I could sort of break out of my shell, if you will. And I actually took some classes that really helped me learn how to do that stuff better and I was interested in how I could market myself and grow the business. And I actually took two courses from the Dale Carnegie organization there in San Francisco, the Dale Carnegie course, and then the sales advantage course, which has the sales advantage course is based on building your business and also working with customers and building connections. And the last thing was just, you know, going to Toastmasters and that kind of stuff. And they were beneficial beyond belief. I know the name Dale Carnegie. And for the listeners who don't know who Dale Carnegie is, can you explain that briefly? Absolutely. They're known as a public speaking organization. And similar to Toastmasters, the idea is to get you out of your shell. They exist more in the corporate world and they typically send managers and people that are rising up the ranks in a corporation to learn how to be inter, you know, more effective interpersonal communications and that kind of stuff. I know about this through my brother who's in corporate and that type of a field where he had to go through that stuff as he moved from a grunt into a manager position, so to speak. And so those courses helped him build the skills that he felt to get into that role better where he could work with people. And after looking around, I'm reading books on how to build my business and just things I can do in town. It's a service business. You know, we're not building products. And just as a small business person, it's like, how can I leverage any tool that's available to me to increase, you know, sales and just help grow the business? 
And so after hearing about it from my brother and taking a look at it, I decided to go for it. They're not the cheapest things in the world, but in the grand scheme of things, I have to say it's a 12-week course. It's over a couple of months and it's a small course. You only It's only about 12 people. But like I said, the, the skills that I learned from that, I still use those skills. I was at AES presenting. It was a panel that Jonathan Weiner hosted. This was two years ago, ASLA. And the panel was about building your career. And the presentation I gave was basically a presentation I learned. And it talked a lot about getting out of your shell and just going and meeting people. And the practice of meeting people and that kind of stuff just helps you open up. And we all want to connect. Mm-hmm. We're all working in the same business. We all want to share our stories. We all want to share our knowledge. We all want to have better relationships. And I can definitely say from you know the person I was before doing that stuff, I had no problems being on stage and being a musician and working with musicians in the studio. But when it comes to, you know, being at a networking event or anything like that and just walking up to people and start talking, that's, that's, that's all of us getting out of our shell. Some of us have it naturally and some of us have to develop it. And it's, I took that course, what, 15, 16 years ago. So I've been, you know, taking those skills forward with me for that amount of time. And it, if you're new and you're starting out your business and you want to, find ways to increase how you can connect with people. I would strongly recommend both courses because I got so much out of them. One was the Dale Carnegie course and the second one was called Sales Advantage. They're both 12-week courses. They go over a couple of months. They were around 1500 bucks each. I put them on a credit card, paid them off over, you know, a year. <laughs> and, uh, but again, the the skills that I got out of it, I can't recommend those uh, those services enough. It's an investment in in yourself for sure. Without question. You know, sometimes when it comes to things like that, people, when it comes to things that on the surface are, you know, $1,500 for a course on right. learning how to talk, what, right. you know, whereas if you think about it, how much money have, has, you know, the typical engineer spent on or recording professional spent on beer over the course of a five to 10 year period Right. You know, going to bars, seeing bands. Absolutely. And if you break down a cost like that, you're talking about, uh, what, $110 a month? How much is your career worth? Are you going to Starbucks three times a week and ordering a $4 cup of coffee? Yeah. Stop, you know, just uh, make a pot of coffee at work. Reallocate that go. money somewhere else. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, there's a phrase that I've heard along the way, and I think it is one of the best phrases I've ever heard. And that is, do you want to live with short-term gain and long-term pain? or short-term pain and long-term gain. You may be paying a little money up front, and like I did, I'm, I just put it on a credit card and paid it off over a year because I didn't have the cash. And it's, you know, credit cards have a what I would call a high interest rate. But again, the benefits I've had over doing that far outweigh the interest I paid on the credit card and anything else I had to, you know, to compromise to do that. Back to us meeting. So here we are, we meet in San Francisco. Where had you come from? I grew up in Kansas. And I grew up in the 80s as a teenager, and it was the days of tape trading and fanzines. I grew up a punk and a metal guy when the thrash and speed metal was, uh, that scene was emerging. That's what it was all about. We had a tiny little record store in town. Obviously, this is way before the internet, and we had a tiny little record store in town, and the owner of that was, in essence, a curator, as we call those folks today. And he was very interested in what the young people coming into the shop were interested in. He kind of started picking up a couple of these small demos. We're talking demos from Megadeth and Metallica and Slayer. 
And these are cassettes, you know, and we're, he starts really getting into it with us. And so my friends and I, I would buy the Metallica cassette and then the Metallica album. And my friend would buy the Slayer album. And we would all basically record each other's albums, the original piracy on cassette, right? And it was, all I could think about was moving to San Francisco. San Francisco was where that scene was happening. I was playing in bands and growing up in Kansas was not a pleasurable experience being a metal guy. And all I could think about was moving to San Francisco. So I was chomping at the bit in high school to get out, was saving whatever money I could have from the job I had, which was making pizzas. And just, I graduated high school and it was time to go to San Francisco. So I stuck around for another year and at 19, I took off and I got to SF in 88. And I was there for the second half of the Bay Area metal scene. And I, I often say, and I will say right now, it was like dying and going to heaven. It was amazing. It was really, truly amazing. 1988 is when you arrived in San Francisco? Correct. Okay, we yeah. arrived at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was your primary instrument? I grew up, uh, I started playing piano as a little kid, and then I heard ACDC, and it was all about playing guitar. So got a guitar around the fifth grade and started looking for a good instructor and went from there. And I had, it took a while to find a good instructor. Again, you have these, you have these profound experiences, and as you get older, you start to see how certain things impacted you in a long-term way. Mm -hmm. They can be negative things and they can be positive things. And when I was a kid and I wanted to learn how to play guitar, my mom is trying to help me find someone. I had a paper route, so that's how I was making money. I bought my first guitar and it was an acoustic. I think I got it for 10 bucks at someone's garage sale. Didn't play very well, as you can imagine. And so she's taking me around trying to help me find an instructor. And Every instructor I had, I would sit down with them. And the first thing they said is, okay, man, I'm going to teach you how to play these Beatles songs because they're the greatest band of all time. And I said, I don't want to learn how to play Beatles songs. I want to learn how to play ACDC songs. Oh, that's, that's garbage. You know, you, you need to learn the greatest band ever of all time. That's the Beatles. I'm going to teach you how to play Beatles songs. So I would go home and mom, I don't like this guy. I don't, I don't want to take lessons from that guy. So I went from instructor to instructor and it took, it took a, about a year to find this guy. And I put it down over and over because I was frustrated, but I just wanted to do it. So I'd pick it back up and we'd look for another instructor. And we found this jazz guy. His name was Kenny Williams. And I sat down with him on the first day and he's like, what do you want to know? And I said, I want to know how to play ACDC songs. And he's like, is there anything else you want to know? And I said, I want to know how this thing works. Because my dad was an engineer and he was always tinkering around with things and he was all about how things worked. And so I was you know, very much in the mode of, I want to know how this thing works. I want to play ACDC songs. And he says, I'll tell you what, instead of teaching you ACDC songs, why don't I teach you how to teach yourself ACDC songs? And, and I said, will you also show me how to change the strings and how it works? Because I wanted to know that stuff. And the other guys were not interested in showing me. First thing they would do when I showed up was tune the guitar. I want to know how to do that. No, 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 no. I'm going to teach you how to play the Beatles. So this, this, this awesome guy, we were together for a couple of years. He ended up graduating college and moving on. He went to Las Vegas, I think, to you know, pursue his career. But I had this guy for two years. And not only did he teach me how to approach critical listening and deconstructing a song and how to find root notes and then build out the melody and the harmony from there. Uh, he was giving me very, you know, introductory music theory lessons. 
and hand positioning and stuff like that. Amazing guy, amazing guy. And again, the what I've learned from him when I look back at my time now is he taught me how to deconstruct a situation and how can I, how can I look at the situation I'm in and look at the parts that make up the sum, take away what I want from it, take away what I want to improve upon it and go forward. That's the skill that he taught me. And it's an amazing life skill that I got from this, this guy. Wow. I tried to find him uh, a few years ago because we had social media and it took a while to find him. And I finally found him and he had died two months before I found him. Oh, wow. Was, uh, that, that was, that was a, a bummer. You're so close. Yeah. Wow. But uh, that gentleman made a profound impact on my life and I'll always be grateful you know, to the people like him. I've had a lot of people that I've run into along the way that have had these amazing, profound impacts on me in a positive way. Because I can't say it's been an easy road, but I've been fortunate to meet some amazing people on the way. How would you sum up your, your time in San Francisco before you left uh, to Los Angeles? When you start, as I mentioned, when I walked to San Francisco, when I walked into that city, the first night I went there, I went to the Stone. <laughs> and I saw, yeah, you know, and I saw this, it was sold out local bands. This band Epidemic, who I later ended up playing with, they were the headliner. Amazing, amazing band. You know, and a bunch of other Bay Area bands were playing, sold out local bands. I met a lot of people that night and it was just such a amazing, insular, happy scene where everyone was just having the time of their lives. And I'd come out of a, you know, a very negative upbringing and a place I did not connect with. And here I am in this place I'd wanted to be in for so long. And like I told you, I cannot express how much it really was dying and going to heaven. And, and it was that way until 92, you know, when grunge hit, things changed, you know, as you know, in San Francisco drastically in the music scene. So I started off San Francisco in this amazing, just life was in a brand new place that I'd always dreamed about. I couldn't believe I was experiencing it. We experienced the gigantic shift in the music scene and, you know, between 92 and 94 when grunge hit and all of the stuff we were experiencing as a Bay Area music scene ended rather abruptly, as I've heard friends in LA told me the same thing. And Seattle was the new place. And if you weren't doing grunge and wearing flannel, then it wasn't happening. So I started moving into engineering at that point, and I also moved in a different direction from metal into the industrial world because it was still heavy and I could relate to it. And I really got into it, you know, skinny puppy and ministry and stuff like that. So I was still doing music, but I was also moving into engineering. You and I were there for the dot bomb, dot bomb 1.0, and we watched the, the culture of San Francisco get dismantled in one year, which was, I would call sad and tragic. I, I had started my business in the late 90s, and then I was there for another, yeah, until 2011. It was the end of 2011. And the in summary, as we saw the decline in the music scene, I found that in mastering, I was doing more and more records that were uh, projects from high-tech people. They weren't projects from professional bands on labels. They were projects from folks having a good time, making a record, and they were certainly serious about their record, but it wasn't what I wanted for my career. So I got more and more depressed living in San Francisco, seeing the change, the, the big change in 2007 when Dot Bomb 2.0 hit and the economy took a big hit. 
So I just started looking for other places to go because I was starting to feel about San Francisco, how I felt about Kansas. And I reached a, a point where I was like, if I feel this way about here, like I felt about there, I have to get out of here. And that was the feeling I had at 18. I have to get out of here. So I looked around. New York was my number one option uh, because, uh, you know, of having epilepsy, I wanted to stay in a situation where I didn't have to rely on driving. But I talked to my friends in New York and they said, oh, don't come here. We're having the same thing happen here. LA was 400 miles away. The risk was higher uh, from a health and a lifestyle situation, but the business was there. And so I said, I'm going to do it. Let's go. And so I took a few years to plan it out and I moved down. I remember when you left and, you know, of course, when people start to leave your scene, you know, obviously it raises concerns. It causes one to question your own existence in that scene. You and several others have left since. And uh, I remember when you left, I was like, oh man, okay, well, what?" I was in the middle of studio you know, ownership. I was having a rough go of it. And uh, here you were leaving. And uh, so you get to Los Angeles. I think I ran into you at maybe an AES. Yeah, because there was an AES in San Francisco. And I think you came back up for, for that AES and I ran into you and you, you relayed a story about getting ripped off, essentially. Can you give us a, the, the explanation of what, what we're talking about? Absolutely. I had come down to LA more times than I can count since 92, playing shows, visiting friends, all that kind of stuff. So I've been down here a lot since I moved to San Francisco, but I didn't know a lot of people in the studio world. San Francisco and LA were pretty disconnected then, and I, I don't know how connected they are now. I wanted to move. I started looking around, how am I going to find a place? right? So I'm asking friends, can you connect me with anyone? I'm looking through ways to find people. And through the AES chapter, through Naris, I was a board member of Naris, a governor, you know, at the time in San Francisco. I was also uh, with the AES team in San Francisco. I've done, what, six trade shows as the, uh, either the chairman or the co-chairman of the workshops division. So I've been in those organizations for a long time. I was asking those folks, how can I, do you have any contacts I can reach out to, et cetera, et cetera. I had a friend that I had known since 1989, and he was my boss uh, in San Francisco. And he'd moved down to LA in 94, 96. We always kept in touch. I'd reached out to him as well. Hey, is there anyone you know? He said, yeah, I know this guy and he's building a studio. And we started talking to the guy who was building the studio and it was, yeah, I'll build you a room. Let's, let's talk about making this happen. And so we looked at the money, we created plans. It was, my friend helped me and it was, it was an experience. I sunk a profound amount of money into what I believed was a room that was being created. My friend was sending me pictures and here's the status, all that kind of good stuff. So I get down here and they had built a rehearsal complex. And there was a few rooms in there. And in essence, they had bit, built me a rehearsal room. And they were taking photos of some place that was completely different and sending them up to me. And my friend, who's no longer my friend, basically kind of threw up his hands. And he was like, well, you know, I, I really needed the cash. And the gentleman who was building the rehearsal studios was, in essence, getting some kind of kickback. And he's still in LA. But it was, it was a well-planned out scam to put it shortly. And I got taken for a ride and I was dealing with a lot of stress at the time. So I wasn't flying to LA and checking up on progress. I'm relying on someone I considered 
best friend status to tell the truth. Why wouldn't he? So it was an unfortunate situation. It was betrayal beyond what you can imagine. And the gentleman who was building the rehearsal studio was being communicated to as, yeah, this is fine. This will work for Mike. So he had no idea that I was getting fed something else. And I get there and I'm annexed in between two rap guys. And I have no separate floor and I've got subwoofers just right there in my room. And, you know, those guys were great guys, but it's not a usable space for me, as you can imagine. How did you deal with that in person at the time? I mean, weren't you, were, you must have been in such utter shock at the money you sent him and what the result was. It's complicated because this is an old friend. So what did you say beyond what the hell? It, it was shock. And I didn't know what to say. I, I said, this is, this is betrayal beyond what I could possibly comprehend. How could you do this? And there was one of the things I've encountered over my life is eye contact. And when someone is not looking me in the eye, especially in a situation like that, what else are you going to do? You're seeing shame. You're seeing, but more than anything, what you're seeing is denial. This person won't make eye contact with me. They're shaking their head. They're making excuses. And as I found myself in situations like that, my response is, look me in the eye and say this to my face. And he wouldn't. So at that point, it's just all I can do now is focus on a solution. I can't bother with beating him up or chasing him around for money. What is that going to gain? What I need to focus on is I've moved to LA. I can't change the situation that I'm in. As far as like moving here and all the stuff is here, I have to find a solution. So it was okay, let's put it in public storage. Now, how can I master? And so for eight months, it turned into my two Weiss boxes, the EQ and the limiter. I bought a pair of Focals. I was renting a room in a, in a house and I strapped up my computer and these two guys and basically tried to find a spot in my bedroom that I could make work. And it turned into headphones, iPod dock, these Focals and telling people, well, you know what? I can't do an attended session right now, but I can give you a really good deal. And it was just, how can I get my feet back on the ground? How can I not lose everything I've built and survive this period? There was an interesting byproduct of that period in my apartment because a lot of us start in an apartment these days. That's a modern place to start these days. Going from a commercial facility like Hyde Street, after all the work Bob Hodis and I had done on that room and all the money that was spent on just accumulating amazing gear and making this place work and going back to a bedroom, when I went back to a, a new space, working with people through plugins and these, and these Weiss boxes, it was a great takeaway. It was like my skills, I had more confidence in my skills is what I mean my confidence went quite a bit up. And the reason for that was, was people were still really happy with the results. And the lesson I took away from that was, it really is what you bring to the table, your experience, your methodology, your attitude. The gear makes a difference. Analog makes a difference. But I learned through that experience that how I approach, again, problem solving, which is a lot of what mastering is, it was a profound lesson and it was a good one. So you can see the good takeaway from the bad. Mike Wells here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to take a little break here, sponsor break with Audio-Technica. 
I believe we talked with Gary Boss about this from Audio Technica that they did have a series of videos with uh, producer and engineer Charlie Waymeyer where they discussed the ins and outs of instrument and vocal miking uh, for a series called Basic Recording Techniques. Well, they now have a new series called the Basic Audio Techniques for Video. It's Charlie Waymeyer is back again for that. And the whole point is to help you get great audio on a video shoot. And it's got a host of professional tips and tricks presented in concise, easy to follow segments. You know, if you're a budding filmmaker, this is for you. Uh, if you're a audio person who knows studio stuff, but you need a little help in the video department, this is something that you should check out. Because if you have zero experience using a boom pole or, you know, boom miking, uh, or, you know, which mic that do you want to use for as a handheld mic, or how do you use basic uh, techniques for use when you're using a, a lav mic, all kinds of techniques for using uh, mics on a video shoot. So once again, check it out. It's the new basic audio techniques for video on Audio Technica's website. All right, so let's get back into it. Here it is, Mike Wells here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I like that you really were dealt a major blow and yet you could still see the silver lining in it and really find the lesson in it that speaks volumes about you. You mentioned epilepsy and I do want to talk about that because I think that's vital to your story. But I, before we do that, I'd like to just talk about uh, the continuation of the audio journey and find out after the apartment, where did you go next? What was the next move? I needed to find some capital to move somewhere. Renting a commercial commercial space, leasing a commercial space. LA, commercial space in LA in the studio world is three times what it was in San Francisco. That's what I found when I was looking for spaces and all that kind of stuff, which is actually what led me to building the space because it seemed like if I can do an investment and get something, I can get a longer term lease and I can pay less over time and all that kind of stuff. So here I am in a situation, my money's gone and I need to raise capital in order to get a new space. So what do you end up looking at? Selling equipment. So what are the compromises I'm going to make to get into a new space? And as everyone can know themselves, those are hard decisions. So I solicited every bank in town. I was with Bank of America and I went to every single bank. I had great credit. And I said, if I bring my business accounts over here, what can you do for me? And I ended up, by switching to Chase, I ended up getting a line of credit that was decent. It, it was enough for me to take yet another risk. And a lot of my life is based on risk. And there's a phrase that I use, and I've used it since I was 19. When I did move to San Francisco, things didn't work out for my living situation, and I lived in my car for about eight months. So I, I'm pretty used to hitting zero. It happens. And it's, I developed that phrase when I was 19, and the phrase is, find a way. And so here I am in the apartment. Things have gone south. I need to find a way to get money. I'm looking at selling gear. Is there another way? Find a way. I go to banks. I'm talking to them. If I bring my business here, what can you do for me? I found a very nice banker at Chase. We negotiated something. I got a line of credit. It wasn't a huge amount, but it was enough for me to take another risk. I talked to Ellis Sorkin at Studio Referral Services, who I didn't know, but I found him once I moved into LA and things started going south. I found him through someone I'd met down here. Ellis uh, helped me find the Megatracks people, which is where my studio is now. And they had a great room that they weren't using. It was a mastering room and they weren't using it because they don't do mastering at their place. They have a recording studio there. It's an in-house music production facility. And the space was expensive, but it was an opportunity for me to take that risk. And I had to sign a three-year lease so that here's your risk. 
I don't have a lot of capital. This is three times what I'd planned on paying, but what else am I going to do? Give up? I don't give up. So it was, okay, I'm rolling the dice. And as I said, I am going to find a way. And so my hustle stepped up to a new level. And given the other challenges I was dealing with at the time, and that began about three or four months after I moved to LA, it was a very interesting period of managing one situation and then trying to manage a different situation. And But I made it work. I found a way. I think it's important to talk about uh, your epilepsy. And if you could kind of trace that from the point at which it, it showed itself the first time to where you're at now with it. Sure. I wasn't born with epilepsy. I have what's called adult onset epilepsy, which is the result of multiple head traumas. It started in my mid-20s. It, there's levels of seizures. There's graduations of how serious they are. And if you're a person that has adult onset, they start really small and they end up getting really big. Uh, there's five different types of seizures. And in my 20s, I started having these episodes where it just kind of seemed like I was getting faint or something. And then in the, mid in the mid 2000s, it started turning into what I now know are simple partials where you, you kind of feel like you're about to pass out, but you don't. And Around 2005, I started having complex partial seizures. I didn't know it at the time. And what that is, is you do uh, lose consciousness. And you have what's called an aura, which is you have a basically a less than a one-second premonition that some bad stuff is about to happen, and then it happens. And you lose consciousness, and you, you go down, and it's a computer crashing, and you reboot. That's the best way to describe a seizure. You crash. And we're made of electricity and our brain crashes and then it reboots and you come back online. So you lose consciousness, you crash, you start to come back online. When you're coming back online, you're in this state that they call the postictal state and you're animated, but you're not present. Typically what you're in is a dream state where you can talk, you can walk, you can do things, but you're not present and you're not in the place that you're in. Typically you're in like a dream, whatever you were dreaming. A, a good way to think of it is you're you're looking at a zombie, you know, because zombies are animated. They can walk and talk, but they're not there. So the postictal state takes anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes for you to come out of it. And then you come back to the present state and your own sense of consciousness. So I started having those. The bummer about a neurological disorder like seizures or any other neurological disorder is you have to see it. So I don't know what the problem is. I'm going to doctors. I'm saying, I don't know what this problem is. This is my symptoms. People thought I was having panic attacks. So I see a panic attack specialist. The panic attack specialist says, I think you're having seizures. I go to a doctor. You're not having seizures. You know, you're, you're not, I don't have a positive view of the healthcare world as a result of my uh, experiences. People were not willing to listen. As they got worse, I was doing research, trying to figure it out and at one point, I went to a neurologist and said, I think this is what's happening. And it was hilarious. The guy says, first off, you're not qualified to make a diagnosis. Second off, since you've told me you think you're having seizures, I have to take your driver's license away. <laughs> 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 and so I was already having a frustrating experience with the medical world. And you can imagine how that, uh, my opinion, ended up after that. So uh, it took a couple of years to get my driver's license back. This is in 2005 going into 2007. And I still don't know what's going on. And um, things are getting worse, meaning the frequency is happening more. I wasn't having grand mal seizures, which are the kind they always show on TV where you flop around on the ground like a fish and you're, you know, you're really, and you're, you're being electrocuted to death. That's what the grand mal seizure is. So from the inside. And I hadn't had those yet. And 
I was going out with a, a wonderful woman towards the end of the 2000s and she caught some of them on video because I asked her if she would, if she could experience one, catch one. And so she had caught a few partial complex ones, excuse me, complex partial ones. And then lo and behold, I had a grand mal seizure, the first one, and she caught it on video. And the next day I couldn't walk. I couldn't talk. This happened in the night because again, you're, you are being electrocuted from the inside out. And those have a very heavy toll. Those take days to recover from. That's not uh, the postictal state and you come back around a half an hour later. You are down for the count. So she helped me get to a doctor and we had this video. And guess what? Mike, you're having seizures. <laughs> <laughs> so I've already got 10 years of struggle in to figure this problem out. More than that, actually more like I've got about 12 years or so at that point trying to get this figured out. It's been slowly getting worse. So now we're finding a, a type of medication that will keep them from happening, which is what you do. And so after about a year and a half of, you know, playing around with meds, we find a solution and we get it under control. And during that time, you're still having seizures. So I'm getting it under control. And I live in San Francisco. I don't have to drive. Of course, they took my driver's license away. And again, and um, at the time, at the time after I got San the Francisco. diagnosis, obviously it went away again. But at least this time I know what I'm dealing with. And I had validity for what I thought was happening. I thought I was going crazy. You can imagine. You think you're going crazy. No one's taking me seriously. What is this? You know, the the best way to describe a seizure I've ever come up with is imagine you're walking around and someone has a loaded gun pointed at your head. And you don't know when it's going to go off, but there's one thing you do know, and that is it's going to go off. And the person that's holding that gun is you. That's huh. that's what it feels like when you're in an uncontrolled seizure state because you don't know when it's coming, but you know it's coming. So loaded gun or a taser. Yeah, yeah, feels more like a loaded gun when you come back around. Yeah. Um, but uh, so you had a couple situations happen publicly. Oh yeah, you told me about. Yeah, them. I mean, I moved down to L.A. and but before that, actually, I had this opportunity to be on a panel with uh, Larry Crane and George Massenberg. Of course, I'm going to take the opportunity, but uh, I couldn't turn the opportunity down. You know, it's like, sure. I don't quit. I took the opportunity. I was scared to death. I got on the panel. I was having seizures all night. Again, I don't know what they are, but I'm having them all night because my girlfriend at the time was with me and she sees these things happening and she's helping me. Now, and the, but you're saying the seizures that you're having all night, they're not the, the, the major not the big ones. ones. These the... are complex partial ones, yes, which are, okay. it's the level below uh, the big ones. So you can, okay. you know, they're, they're like a, uh, they're, you know, they're a crash, but they're not a system restore crash. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. They're not yeah. a, uh, they're not a, they're not a kernel. They're, they're not a reinstall the OS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Boy, are we geeks. Yeah. This is how we geek out. Yeah. And uh, so I get, I walk into the room. I am. I'd never met George before. And as like most of us in the industry, he's a hero, man. You know, I have so much respect for this guy. I have a 9,500. I have a 2030. I've read more interviews with this guy than I know what to do with. And of course, we all know George's reputation. No offense, George. And so I, I meet him before we get on the panel and I am literally in a panic state and I'm just trying to hold on. My lady at the time, she's like, you don't have to do this in the hotel room before we went down. And I said, yes, I do. So I'm on the panel. And it's you and George yeah. and Larry I for, and anybody, anybody else? I'm at the end. Larry's next to me. George is next to him. And I forget who's at the end. Okay. And we're about 10 minutes in and bam, hits me. 
And uh, later, you know, my my lady told me, you know, that, uh, you know, Larry said, is this guy okay? And she walked up to the panel and she said, just, just give him a few minutes, he'll be fine. And so they kind of kept the panel going and, you know, she told me this, they kept the panel going and they kind of let me uh, reboot, so, so to speak. But she said, you know, he'll give him a few minutes, he'll be fine. And so okay. I came back around and I obviously know what's happened and I'm facing a packed room full of people. And, but again, I don't know what they are, but I know it happened. And so I got back on the panel and you know, people are talking. And then at one point, somebody said something, cause I, I've been in the metadata world for a long time. I've been an early adopter of the whole metadata thing. And George said something about metadata that was actually incorrect. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> Sorry, George. So I said, well, actually, George, that's not true. You know, here's the actual answer to that. And he looked at me like, <laughs> it was, it was really funny. He looked at me uh, like, you know, you know how people are. It, the look on his, I didn't know him at the time I just met him, but the look on his face was, if whatever happened hadn't happened, I would be doing something different right now. <laughs> and, uh, and so the panel finishes and I get up and I've, I'm, of course, in, I'm full of shame and uh, I'm just upset and I need to get out of there. And George pulls me aside and he's like, are you all right, man? And I said, I, I'm good. I'm good. I just, you know, I have to leave. And he's like, are, you, are really, are you okay? And I'm like, I have to leave, you know, and I left. And it was, as you can imagine, there was a lot of shame around this situation because I don't know what's happening, but it's happening in public. It's happening in front of clients. You know, it's, um, I'm trying to build a career, you know, speaking in public to help, you know, build my career and it's happening on panels. It's happening in other places. And I'm, it, there's a lot of shame that goes with that when it's undiagnosed as you can, as you can imagine. And so, yeah, that was on a panel. And then, uh, it happened at a Grammy meeting when I was on the board of governors. And that was again, uh, just, you come out of that situation, you know, what's happened. I was in the ambulance when, when I came out of that one and I can, I have a joke. You know the only thing worse than waking up in an ambulance, Matt? What? Waking up in an ambulance again. <laughs> and again and again. And as someone with a pre-existing condition, they won't give you this thing called health insurance because you're too expensive. So right. when you're being hauled away in, in an ambulance to EMT, all that stuff is private. So you don't, no one pays for that but you. So you start stacking up some pretty impressive bills. So I, I am faced with this decision of moving. And I need to move to LA. So at this point, you're you're leaving San Francisco. You still, you know that you're having seizures. Is that yeah? We you know you we got it. We got it diagnosed in uh, in 2010. So between 2010 and 11, we found a uh, a cocktail that would you know get it under control. So okay, and this is a, you you discovered what the actual problem was by the time you got to Los Angeles. We we had it uh, diagnosed in uh, late 2009, and uh, I had stable medication by uh, mid 2010, and I moved to LA at en the end of uh, 2011. So I had it under control for a little over a year, and I had it under control long enough for me to get my driver's license back. And my first choice of moving was New York for the, the main reason for being the public transportation system in and I'm going to move and what if something goes wrong, you know? Because if something goes wrong and I'm back in a situation where I can't drive, it would be very unfortunate to live in a place where driving is an essential part of 
coexistence uh, right. or existence, I should say. But my friends in New York were saying, you know, the studio world is being dismantled here, just like San Francisco, because of the finance industry and rising costs and whatnot, where it was high tech in uh, San Francisco. So my choices were Nashville and LA, and I grew up in Kansas. Uh, Nashville's not an option. So I decided to move to LA and I'm going to take the risk. We had it under control and I want to keep my career going and I want to build my career. This I've been a musician and I've been in music my whole life. I'm not giving up. I'm going to find a way. So I moved to LA and I've got the situation that I described earlier about losing, you know, all the money and losing the space and not having a space. I'm working at home. And then lo and behold, situation changed and my medication stopped working from the standpoint of keeping things under control. So, and to complicate things further, I'm not having the simple ones. I'm having the big ones. So I'm having the grand malls now and they're, they're getting worse. Started having a few, then they started happening more frequent. And at one point in 2013, and I know this from, you know, tracking them and writing them down and, and the friend I was working with to try and help me get around and get to appointments and things like that. I was having between three and five a week. Oh my God! In, and it, it when you have them, based on what you've described, it it it's a hard thing to recover yeah. from. It really takes a, a chunk of a time days. away from. Yeah, you. It, the big ones take a few days to fully come back. You know, I mean, obviously you're going to get back up, but it's kind of like being beaten up by a baseball bat. You know, you're sore. Everything really hurts. Um, you have a headache that really never goes away for a few days, and your cognition is really impaired. You know, your ability to problem solve and think clearly and just, you know, function as you are used to functioning at your own level of capacity, which obviously varies from person to person. But I've always been a high functioning and energetic driven person. And so I'm very compromised from what I'm used to performing at. So, you know, from, from mid 12 to when I get into mid 13, like I said, I'm having three to five a week. I can't drive, obviously that would, that's just a a no-go from any kind of common sense, let alone, you know, the state of California is not having that. So I'm getting around LA with a bicycle and the bus system. And anyone who's lived in LA knows that that's not a very effective way to get around LA. And I can't really get out and network because of the amount of time it takes and the you showing up sweaty on a bicycle to a networking event in LA is not the greatest experience for the people that you're trying to meet. And it, it was very difficult. Like I said, 2013, I'm having three to five a week for almost the whole year. My memory, it, it knocks your memory out, as you can imagine. My memory of 2013 is, is incredibly basic. The photographs that I see of that year, I can say, okay, those things happened. But do I have a conscious memory of those things happening? No. I can see jobs that were done and I can listen to them. Do I have conscious memory of working on those records? No. I lived on spreadsheets. My entire life revolved around spreadsheets. That's how I kept the day-to-day -day going. How I managed the hustle, honestly, I have no idea. But I do remember just finding new ways to hustle, finding new ways to work around this disability and trying to find a new doctor and trying to um, find a solution. And you have to go through, you know, you have to try different drugs. You have to try them for a certain amount of time to see if they're going to take hold and there's a lot of different ways to play it. All different drugs have different side effects. So you have to figure out if you're going to get through the side effects and see if it'll work at the back end of that. So one of those efforts can take upwards of four to five months to see if you're going to find a solution with a certain drug or a certain cocktail of drugs. So it ended up being a four-year journey to get to a solution 
to where we found a cocktail that stopped it. And so, you know, about, about the time, it was ironic. It was about the time I moved out of my bedroom and into the studio I have now here at the Megatrax facility around that time when I needed to drive. That's when it started happening. So it was a very, on an emotional level, I can tell you the amount of anger and the amount of anger and, and bitterness. A lot of, lot of complexity yeah. to, to what, what you went through. I yeah. mean, I mean, you combine the challenges that you faced in audio, but you, if you can, if you add that into add the epilepsy to the table, man, I, I got to commend you for your perseverance because what I'll just say it, what a fucking uphill battle. <laughs> it's excuse my friend. Oh no, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> I curse more than you can imagine. Uh, um, as you probably know, I'm holding back today. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But but I mean, Mike, really, uh, I'm I, I think I'm I'm a little speechless because I just I had no idea how hard that it was for you. I mean, I knew that you you had a couple bumps in the road, but really, I didn't realize that these were giant sinkholes that had appeared in your path that you climbed out of, and just I mean, you just kept going. You really kept going. It's the only option is to give up, and yeah, and it's like, what are you going to do? I spent years, I've spent over a decade and a half making this thing happen. I spent my whole life as a musician, you know, building what I, what I have as a career. And what is my option? To give up? There's no, no option. As I told you, the only way I know is find a way. And I'd, I'd be through these situations and it was find a way. And trust me, it wasn't every day that I was like, you know what, Mike, we're going to get through this. No, man, no. There was an amazing amount of depression and anger and just resentment towards life itself. You had said, if I recall correctly, that it's been it's been a while since you've had a seizure. Yeah, that's what I was going to say next. Was I'm coming up? I'm coming up on my two year anniversary uh, next wow. next month. That's huge. And I don't talk about these things in this kind of detail, as you can imagine. So I'm coming up on this two year anniversary, and it's. It's powerful, powerful stuff, man. It's powerful stuff. It's not unlike a recovering alcoholic. Yeah. In in many respects, yeah. um, it it can be debilitating, and it can really thwart you in a in a. It can thwart your professional life. Yeah. There's no doubt around that. And you know, while I was going through that, I I did fall into relying on drugs just to deal with the anger and the depression. And I was never a drug user when I was younger. And mm -hmm. as things are falling apart around me and I, I just, I'm doing everything I can to handle it. And I just started, I just started smoking weed because I didn't know how to handle things otherwise. And after we got things under control, I was faced with yet another decision. And that was, what am I doing with this stuff? And so, you know, I, I stopped doing that, which is yet another struggle. You know, because once you're down in that tank, uh, which I'd never been before, but I found myself there. It's, it's another decision. Like, are you going to keep doing, going down this road? So, you know, I've, I've climbed out of a couple of holes with regard to the, the side effects of how I was coping with the situation. And I'm two years out from a seizure. I'm a year and a half out from any substances. You can't drink alcohol and have a seizure disorder. That's, that's, you've just asked for a seizure. It's happening pretty much within a couple of minutes. So, you know, I don't, I don't do anything. I'm caffeine free. I'm alcohol free. I'm drug free. It's uh, I'm the poster boy. 
wow. of cleanliness. You're the, yeah. You, yeah, you are the poster boy yeah. for the straight edge yeah. lifestyle. It's a, it's a, it's a different um, spin on the typical engineering lifestyle <laughs> and certainly what, I've, <laughs> certainly what I've done in the past, you know, especially in my 20s, in my 30s. So, yeah. You are the 113th episode. I've talked to a lot of people, a lot of people. I've never heard a story so filled with challenges ever. And I think the audience who will hear this, I think uh, if they're regular WCA listeners, I think they're going to be uh, surprised at the amount of challenges. But, you know, it's one thing to hear of the challenges, but I got to tell you, I mean, I'm in awe of you in terms of, once again, your perseverance and your ability to refuse to lay down here really inspiring and it and it really like it puts things into perspective for those of us who who have challenges i mean everybody's got Absolutely. challenges but but it really puts it into perspective for me because i i mean I, yeah i've 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 had some bumps in the road and i've got a couple challenges but other than that you know it really makes you think you know what i got to really take advantage of whatever you know lack of of serious challenges I have at this moment in life and really seize the day because your story is very, very inspirational. Well, thanks. I mean, it's, um, it has been a very strange road and there was one, I mean, there, there's a, a big thing regarding the epilepsy thing. If you want me to mention it, I, I certainly can, because it's certainly a contributing thing to the story. Absolutely. Um, and that is, as I had said, you know, I'm, 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 coming up on my two-year anniversary. And we had actually found the winning cocktail in um, January two years ago. And my anniversary is next month. What happened two years ago next month was I got food poisoning from, I don't know if you remember that. I don't know if it happened anywhere else other than uh, Los Angeles because it was this massive chicken recall. And we had bought this chicken and cooked it. It was, you know, one of those ones you get at the grocery store. And it was one of mm -hmm. the chickens that was defective and it was giving people food poisoning, but it was from a major brand. And so the next day, my lady and I are purging is the word I would use. You know, your, your body is like, let's get rid of this stuff. You know, you have food poisoning. What I wasn't aware of was that it's purging your medication as well through your bloodstream. So she left to go get some stuff. And there's this thing called... Um, Staticus epilepticus, also known as the loop. Uh, and what that is, is you have now gotten into a grand mal seizure and one triggers the next. So it's a, it's a cycle and you don't come out of it. What happens is your your brain is electrifying itself and you, you come out of one, you start another. You come out of one, you start another. You never stop. And so you die. And that's when it stops. And so she came back from the store and found me on the ground and I was in this. And uh, she, you know, was waiting for me to come out and I wasn't coming out because she'd never seen one before. And, you know, she calls the, my neurologist uh, and, you know, their department and says, this is happening. I've never seen it before. I don't know what's going on. And they said, you know, call 911. And so she calls 911 and they pop me in the ambulance because I finished. So I flatlined in the ambulance. So I died. Wow. And so that was on... Uh, yeah, that was next month on my anniversary date. And I was in the hospital for a few days in critical care after that. Cause you don't, that's not a, that's not a, like a get up and brush it off <laughs> kind of thing. So yeah, I was in critical care for a few days and I learned obviously that 
if you get food poisoning, then you need to go to urgent care so they can put you on an IV, you know, so you're not purging your medication. And, uh, but we'd never seen that before. And so that was sort of the grand finale of all of that because we had found the cocktail. It was stable. We'd gotten past the the ramp up period and the side effects and everything was working for a number of months. And it's like, okay, we were excited. We'd found, it's like all, after all these years, it's like, this is working. Oh my God. And, uh, and then that happened. And it was, like I said, that was, that was the last one. And boy, what a grand finale. <laughs> so, how, uh, how long were you out? I was out for, or, excuse me. How long were you dead? I was, oh, just less than a minute. Uh, I don't, I don't know how that works. I never asked. And I'm sure there's charts that show that stuff, but they told me when I came back around, I was unconscious for a little over nine or 10 hours. And, you know, I came around in the, you know, in the, at this time in a very different place than I was used to. <laughs> Either the, you know, ambulance or the emergency room. This time I was in a very different place. And you know, when you wake up in the ER or in the ambulance, you know, it's at my, at that point, I've done it so many times, you know, it's kind of a, oh man, you know, and what a bummer, you know, and one of the things you think about is the the bills that are going to show up. And, and again, you know, just the, all of the emotions that go with it, the anger, all that stuff, it's easy to be a victim. And so I woke up, in, woke up in a very different place. I was there for a few days, you know, getting discharged. I was down for the count for almost two weeks. I wasn't even able to work. You know, I couldn't push through my usual way and take the bus or, you know, any of the other stuff I was doing. So it was, that was a really hard recovery time, but that was, that was my last one. And wow. When you, when you really stop something, you really kind of go out on a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, in a blaze of glory, yeah, no doubt, man, no doubt. So, <laughs> you know, it's funny. There was, I, it's funny cause I've had folks, you know, ask me, did you see anything? And no, I've never seen anything. You know, my personal opinion is when the lights go off, the lights go off, you know, that was your, that was your experience. And that's my takeaway from all this stuff. You know, I, I feel like I gained some insight as far as the fear of death, if you will. And not just from that, but just from all the other ones, you know, when you, when yeah. you go down and you wake up in the hospital, it's like, okay, man, you know, when your time comes up, that's it. So coming back to something that you said, all the time you have, it's happening right now. And I think as audio engineers, emerging audio engineers, young people. I've obviously been one of those people. We live in an industry where your value is based on your credits and your equipment and to some degree, your location. And we get caught up. I've been that person as well. We get caught up in if only I could get those credits, if only I could have that equipment, if only I lived in that town then I would have those opportunities. I would get those connections. I would, you know, through those connections and those records, I would buy that equipment. And it just doesn't work that way. The, I firmly believe that you can build whatever you want to. It's how you approach it, the attitude you bring to the table, and your personal perseverance to what you want to achieve. Because focusing on the I wish I, if only, why don't I have having that attitude not only holds you back, but it uses the time that you're never getting back. Yeah. That's a healthy perspective. And it's, it's unfortunate that you have had to take such a rough journey to get there, to get to this point. And it took that for me to really learn those lessons because I was the guy that, I mean, let's face it, 
we meet people, we see people that have privilege of one or more of kind. You know, they have privilege of, from a financial standpoint, or they have privilege from a, a connection standpoint. And I mean, you know, being passed down or through whatever mechanisms, you know. And so it's easy to be that person where you're, you know, you can put yourself in the, oh man, well, if I had that, or if I had this, or if I had those, then it's it's an easy way to, you know, make a victim out of yourself and feel like you you don't have the same opportunities. But I don't think that's true. I think it really is up to you. And I also feel that there is a lot of work out here in the world, more so than there's ever been. And different regions with different budgets and different costs of living present different opportunities to people to take advantage of that cost of living, take advantage of those budgets, build a client base in whatever community you're in or the region that you're in. And certainly the internet is limitless in your region. I've built a base in, in the last year in Mexico. I have some amazing clients coming out of Mexico and Colombia. And these folks are on Universal. You know, these are, these are great clients that are doing great work. They're not huge international clients, but their records are incredibly well recorded. Everyone's, it's very professional. And I certainly get opportunities now that I've, I'm very grateful for that are international clients like, uh, like the Green Day opportunity. Working with Chris Dugan was amazing. And of course, you know, the Green Day team, this uh, Paris Cabell record that I worked on last year, amazing opportunity and just a wonderful record. Those opportunities are there. And certainly those are the results of career building and experience and building your network. But when I look at my core client base, these are people that have stuck with me for over a decade. And we've built great relationships. And the clients that I get through their network and their recommendations from folks that they interact with, that's the core of my business. And I think that's the core of most people's business. But as an industry, we are very hyper-focused on credits. And we all feel that that is the path to success. Gear leads to credits and credits lead to fame. And fame chasing is a tough road to go down. I've been down that road. It's You're setting yourself up for a lot of struggle, a lot of frustration, and I think a lot of disappointment. Let me ask you some almost what now I think are almost ridiculous questions in comparison to uh, everything you just told me. But now that you've been down the path you've traveled and a a path like not many get to travel, I want to know what your overarching business philosophy is as a mastering engineer. uh, What's your approach now? to growing your business and and stay and surviving in a lot of ways it's the same it's always been meaning going to events meeting people building new relationships looking for new opportunities which is what we're all doing i'm in a new market now not full time but i've through getting to know my my landlord the megatrax folks they are a production music company so i've started doing some work with them because mastering is a part of the production music world. So I've branched out into that market. I'm doing work in the production music field. I've built, over the last year, I've, stems have become a topic. And I've really dug deep into the stems idea. The electronic guys like doing it. The rap and hip hop guys like doing it. Because what we're able to really achieve is a really amazing sense of space and depth and maintain a sense of dynamics at a very compressed uh, result. We all know from stereo compression that the trade-offs are pretty, pretty big. And the loudness situation is 
it is what it is. There is no war, as I like to say. There's loudness. And your target is your target, but there is no war. There's just, there's just loudness. And the STEMS process has opened up a new opportunity because I do it with a lot of the production music folks because it's part of their business model. And I've looked at how to do it with artists. And so I've created a process that works really well. And most importantly, fundamentally, it resolves the question of how do you not remix the track? That is the foundation argument against STEM mastering. And I agree with it. So trying to find a way to develop a process that does not veer off into that path and still achieves not only the mastering result, but the mastering result without the compromises that we do across the stereo bus. That's what I've been working on in this last year to develop a new business process. And I rolled it out a few months ago because I've been working with specific clients on it to kind of develop the process. And it's working really well. I don't insist on it and I don't force it because obviously it's more expensive as a process, but it's interesting from the standpoint of it really can deliver something unique. I don't recommend it for every record. Some records, we can get exactly what they want right off a of stereo. And you know what? That's what we should do. But when things are having a lot of buildup and frequency you know, conflicts and compromises with transients due to stereo bus compression and limiting that we have to do in the mastering process, then I will suggest it. Hey, is this something maybe that you would be interested? And the first question is budget. And if the budget isn't there, let's not pursue it. But some folks have been, well, yeah, I'm interested. And well, the budget is high, but let's take a look and we'll do a track. And typically I'll do a track and it will be a very minor increase on the fee of that song just so we can check it out. So they're getting to check it out and I'm presenting an option and I'm not making any money on it, but I'm interested in it, you know, because I believe in the process when it can benefit the record. And a lot of times they're saying, let's make that happen because I'll say this to artists. If there's, I don't know how many artists listen to your podcast, but I know we all say this, but the more we can reinforce it, the better. You make a record and you're looking back on that record for the rest of your life. Do you want to look back and say, I made a great record or I made a cheap record? Those are incredibly different goals. And again, long-term pain versus short-term gain it's or short or short term pain yeah, versus yeah. long term. Excuse gain, me. Yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah, you might pay a little more up front, but what are you going to look back on? How are you going to, you know, how are you going to feel about this? And when I was an artist, I've made all the same decisions that I've run into people doing now, trying to find a shortcut, trying to find a way to find the magic bullet that's cheap and great. But it's the old adage, you know, fast, cheap and good pick two. You're never going to get all three, but you are making a decision. And I think it's I think it's important that we all, as engineers, remind folks of that. I don't want to call it a consequence, but in some ways it is. But reminding them of the cost of the decisions that they're making when they make budget decisions versus life decisions. Because standing by a record for the rest of your life, maybe you paid a little more now, but you're just going to stand by it forever. That's a life decision. So coming back to your question... I've been working on this STEMS process. I just did a video series for Dangerous, and it's a tutorial, sort of conceptual, philosophical, and tutorial series on it. It's a three-part series. It should be coming out soon. Um, I'm doing it in the analog domain, the STEMS domain, and I'm summing it through a Dangerous 2 bus, and it's really, really fun stuff. Uh, so I've been developing that business process and, like I said, doing all the same kind of stuff I've always done, networking, public speaking, education. The most profound thing that I am doing now that I didn't do before is what I was saying earlier about my perspective being different. And when I'm out and I'm meeting folks, there is no sales pitch. You know, in the before before these last few years, 
It was, you know, hey, let's talk. You know, yeah, we should work on a record, you know, all that kind of stuff. The reality is if you can build a relationship with someone, if they want to work with you, they're going to. At this point, I don't feel like those sales pitches work. So my attitude now is build a relationship. If someone's interested in working with you on a record or trying you out, they're going to. If you take that pressure off of yourself, I've taken that pressure off of myself. It's changed my life. I'm a, I'm a much more relaxed person. I'm happier when I go out and network with people and go to events. I have a better takeaway. I think everyone's more comfortable, you know, when we're not in that pressure cooker situation. That's a lot of the nature of our business in the industry is, is everyone's doing the hustle. Yeah. You know, that's interesting. It it not only takes the pressure off you, it also takes the pressure off the other person in that Absolutely. equation because, you know, I think anybody who's spent any time in the world of audio, music, et cetera, um, they know that if they meet somebody who performs a service that they already have somebody fulfilling that service, you know, there's probably going to be the some form of sales pitch one way or the other. Absolutely. You know, yeah. Especially, you know, especially with mastering engineers. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was a, there was a phrase back in the 90s. I remember one, this is like 99, 2000, when I started actually doing mastering for other bands and getting paid for it. And I remember talking to a senior local mastering engineer in San Francisco and his, he asked me what my rate was and, and he was like, oh, brother. He's like, you know, 100, 150 is the new 200, you know, and um, and then I've noticed over the last 15 years, 75 was the new 100, <laughs> you know, 50 is the new 75, you know, and now I see looking out there, it's like 35 is the new 50, you know, it's the race to the bottom thing is low rates is how people get into the business. There's, that's a factor of how the business works. So I guess coming back to your your point about mastering engineers, it's 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 a different function of the recording process. Everything is flooded, but I think mastering is flooded in a unique way where I mean, you've got mixing engineers doing mastering as well. And I guilty. No, and it's but here, check this out. I don't fault the mixing engineers doing that. And the reason I don't fault them is because their their world, your world, Matt, is just as competitive as the mastering world. And I know so many mixing engineers that are basically, if they don't include mastering, they don't get the gig. That's true. So how can you I, fault a mixing engineer for getting a gig? I, I try to avoid being the one who masters my own stuff yeah. at all costs. Yeah. I like either wearing the mixing hat, the mastering hat. Mm -hmm. And it's taken me a long time to learn this when it comes to tracking it's hard to be the drummer and the tracking oh, engineer. Yeah. I'll just tell you. Oh yeah. That. Oh yeah. I've pulled it off successfully pretty well yeah. one one time I can spot mm -hmm. and then the other times it was like, oh man, it's it's my my standards and my of what I expect now from a a drum set caused me to tell a guy I was playing drums with. I just said, "You know what? Can we get another drummer?" Yeah. Yeah. Because it's it's too hard, and and just as yourself, I've tried being the guitar player and the recording engineer, and it's it those are poor decisions. <laughs> um, something I would mention in your I don't know how many people are doing this because I just started doing it, but I started it as a way to once again address this we don't have the money response, and it's financing. 
Hmm. And it, it has actually started working. And you got to share that. What I'm doing there. And yeah, I'd love to share that because this is working for me now. And I think we all experience, I certainly experience it. The band comes in and they've asked the mixing engineer to master the record. And all, all of these folks are my friends. We all work together. You know, we're, we have working relationships and they're saying, well, you know what? You should use Mike. He's my guy. And well, what's Mike's rate? You know, question number one. Well, Mike's rate is this. Oh man, I can't afford that. And it, it's, it's become, it's like buying a used car. If you don't negotiate down, then you haven't done your job at buying the car. It's, it's interesting, but um, we all know that. So, but I'm having these guys come in and, and we sit down and we talk typically with the engineer, if they can come in and the band, but we'll listen to a mix and we'll talk about what they're looking for and we'll talk rates. And of course they say, well, I can't afford it. Can you come down to half your price? Because I'm looking at all these guys on the internet. And your question is, well, what's your real budget? And they tell what they're basically their ideal budget, which is usually a hundred dollars. I mean, let's, we all experience it. Let's face it. Cause there's someone on the internet that's going to master your tracks for 10 bucks. You know, I mean, T-Rex has mastering plugins, so anyone can do it. There's mastering apps for your iPhone. Anyone can do it. You know, it's uh, you know, my, one of my jokes is my grandmother has been dead for 20 years and she's a fucking badass DJ and she just started mastering and man, she can make shit loud. So, uh, <laughs> you know, but that, it's such a, Mastering has been commoditized to one function, and that is a limiter. And, yeah. and, and so if, if people's perception of mastering is a limiter and a limiter has presets, then why should I hire you? You have no value. So that's where, again, credits validate your value and the, mix, the relationship with the mix engineer validates your value. So leveraging these two things, and of, of course, having a commercial facility helps a lot. Having these, these two or three things, having the band in and talking about them, I have found that if we can get, we can take the budget question aside because I will say, okay, guys, I understand that budget is a concern because budget's a concern with everyone. And it's a concern for me because I need to get paid and I need to keep the doors open. So let me ask you some other questions. And those questions become, like I was saying earlier, how do you want to look back on that on this record? And you can ask that in a real jackass way. You can be a sarcastic idiot about it, or you can engage them as a fellow musician and really get their guard down and let them open up and talk to them about their record. Once you get the band to actually take the guard down, like let's just take budget off the table. Let's talk about how you want to look back on this record. Let's talk about how you want people, including yourself, to experience this record when it's done. You know, like let's put it up on the on the console. Let's listen to it. Let's listen to some other stuff. Let me put a preset on it and you can hear it right now. And get them involved. Get them emotionally involved because they're already invested. They've made the record. They're invested. Their challenge is seeing mastering for the value that it brings to the table. So you can get them there by respecting them, bringing them into the conversation, getting them into the situation where they will communicate with you on a person-to-person -person basis. Once you're there, I am now financing. And what I am telling folks is, here's my budget. This is what I do. Or, excuse me, not my budget. Here's my rate. This is what I do. And I want to give you this record. But I can't take less because I got to keep the doors open. So let me give you what you want. Let's break this up. How many payments would you need to do to pay this? And how long would that payment structure need to be? 
and we work it out on a band-to-band basis. And the fact that I'm willing to work with them changes the the dynamic immediately. I have witnessed this over and over. I've been doing this for about three months now. And the dynamic changes instantly because you're on their side. And it's working for me because as I gather more bands that will pay my rate and I'm financing it over two months or three months, and if it's a lot of songs, maybe six or eight months, we finance it. If I've got 10 bands financing, I'm still making a good nut every month. And it's supplementing all the other guys that are paying full rate for their job. How how are you, and I, I hate to use the word enforcing that, but how are you staying on top of them making the payments and what do you do if they don't make a payment? I take a credit card and I'm running, I'm running a credit card. We agree on a date. And so far I haven't had anyone default. It's a risk that you're taking. You know, we agree upon a date with the band. We pick one card. The card can never change. So if the band is paying, you know, a pool, they all pay a pool to the guy whose card I'm using. And about a week before, you know, I'm going to run it. I say, guys, your card's coming up next week. And, you know, I don't say passive aggressive things like make sure you have the money. Don't, you know, put me in a bad position. I just, when we make the deal, I say, I'm trusting you to honor this part of the, of the negotiation. We have made an agreement. People are like, oh, do I have to sign something? Like what we're going to sign is an email agreeing to what the terms are, but I'm trusting you. You know, I am going to do what you want on this record. What a professional engineer delivers for their clients. I'm giving you everything I have. And what I want from you is the ability to know that you're going to honor your agreement. I haven't had anyone come back at me with a, you know, a declined credit card. I do that for, in an unstructured way with clients I've had. Yeah for years where I'll just say, just pay me what you can. And, you know, I know you're good for it. We'll work it it out. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, But, but your idea of hitting the credit card on a, on a monthly basis, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and choosing one credit card and one point of contact, like you're the guy I'm talking to you. I'm going to let you know a week in advance. You know, it doesn't matter if you've gone on vacation with your family. It doesn't matter if, you know, uh, something happened to your car, you guys make this happen, you know, and, I also can say that I've been doing this a long time. We talked about earlier that I've taken all of these, you know, public speaking courses and human interaction courses and I still take them. The the benefit of experience that I have helps me read people when we're doing this negotiation. I can tell you there's clients that I haven't even offered because I'm meeting them and I'm like, "Oh, this this guy wouldn't pay his bill." You know. Hmm. So, it's you got to be able to read people to the point where you're willing to offer that service. And I have found that one of the ways I qualify them is how they're going to engage me in the conversation when I am discussing rates with them and when I'm discussing how they want to look back on their record. If they're giving me the broken record syndrome of it just has to be cheap, it just has to be cheap, it just has to be cheap, then I'm not interested in offering them this, this option. If they start telling me like, we, we really want to have the record that we truly want, we just can't afford it or there's not a way for us to make it happen. We really want your services. When that is happening in the conversation, it changes the dynamic. And of course, anyone could say that, but you know when someone's being genuine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What is your philosophy with your money as it relates to to the world of mastering? Throughout my life, I've been at zero more than a couple of times. And I heard a great TED talk by the woman who crossed 
the Pacific Ocean in a life raft because she wanted to see if she could do it. It's a great TED Talk if you haven't heard it. And she did it because she was giving the interview. <laughs> and, and they asked her, how do you deal with the, you're, you know, you've, they've got nothing around you. How do you deal with that anxiety and that, what are you going through? And she said, at a certain point, you become normalized to the uncertainty. And I think that's the perfect perspective. It is a lot of stress. It doesn't change because our competition's always getting bigger. You know that, Matt. The rates are always yeah. going lower. You know that. We all know that. So there's more and more people in the industry. There's cheaper and cheaper tools. You know, we're dealing with this. This is, everything's getting cheaper. Everything's more of a flip. So we have to manage how we're going to survive. And I, I've been up against the wall so many times, especially in these last four or five years, that, uh, oh man, it's been six years. You know, two of those have been a turnaround, but the first four were pretty incredible, you know, here in LA. But I've been up against the wall so many times. Like I said, my phrase is find a way. You can't let it take you over. You have to look at what your opportunities are rather than what your limitations are. You have to look at what you can do versus what might happen. I would assume you're aware of it, but you remember the beginning of, of our conversation where we were talking about your guitar teacher talking to you about deconstructing things? Absolutely. That's what you seem to be doing for every situation. You just deconstruct it and, you know, you take it apart and go, okay, this is the good part. This is the bad part. I'm going to seize on the good parts. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful and feel lucky that we had this conversation. It, uh, I, I had no idea the extent of it. And I, I have to thank you for for being so open about all this and coming on my show and, and talking about this. It's, uh, like I said, I've in interviewed a ton of people. Everybody's different. Everybody has a story to tell. And uh, you've had one hell of a story. I, everybody has challenges and I don't think mine are worse than anybody else's. And that's, I guess that's what I was trying to say a minute ago. I don't, I yeah. don't look at myself as I had a bad rap. I look at it like this is what I've been presented and I have to deal with what's in front of me. Well, Mike, thank you. Thank you so much for, for coming on and being so transparent about all this. It's, it's an amazing journey and I can't thank you enough. And, and hey, you know, I just got to say, I know you took a lot more time than you originally budgeted and thank you very much for all your time. And really, thank you for having me on the show, man. I, re I really appreciate it. And it's an honor to be on your show. It's, I can't tell you how many people talk about your show down here in LA. It is very, very well-respected and people like it and they, they really talk about it. You are, you are a big deal down here, man. People really respect you. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I'm big in Japan. Yeah, I mean, people talk about Pensado and they talk about you in the same sentence. Yikes. They do. They do. Wow. And, I, and I, that's not uncommon. People do that. So you have a following and, and it's growing. People really, really respect what you're doing. And I think it's because of what you're doing. It's not geek. It's not settings. It's not gear. It's people and dealing with their careers. Now I'm totally blushing. Well, see, because you can't see that because we shut the video yeah. to make the Skype work. <laughs> well, okay, Mike. <laughs> On that note, I, wow, thank you. I, I don't know, I don't know what to say. That's that's amazing. It's all good. Man. Um, thank you again, and um, yeah, man, take care. Stay in touch. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Matt. Take care. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. There you have it, Mike Wells here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Powerful interview. Lots of uh, lots of lessons there to be had, and uh, lots of inspiration for sure. But uh, as usual, we are out of time. So. 
Got to thank everybody. Want to thank Mr. Mike Wells. We want to thank Cliff Truesdell. We want to thank Colt Williams and Chuck Smith. We want to thank our sponsors, of course, Lawton Audio, Focal Monitors, Audio Technica, Gear Sluts, and Universal Audio. And I want to thank you. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>